Halkata you had a kamlo tangata otimuana from RNZ Pacific, me Koroi Hawkins. Coming up first. Many of them have been displaced, lost their positions, and initially had struggled to contact their families. We check in on how Pacifica communities are faring after Gabriel. Also, the FSM will receive on an annual basis. $140 million per year in sector grants. We look at the significance of Washington locking in the final compact MOU in Micronesia, and later on... To be sitting there talking to the chairman of World Rugby and say, is it because of this? Is it because of that? We speak with the host of Fair Game, a podcast taking a serious look at what Pacific rugby nations are up against inside the World Rugby universe. In what has been described as the storm of the century for New Zealand, parts of the upper and central North Island buckled under the fury of ex-tropical cyclone Gabriel, forcing the declaration of a national state of emergency on the 14th of February. It only took a couple of days for the storm to unleash its fury once it made landfall, taking lives, destroying homes and bringing many communities to their knees. Standing alongside all New Zealanders affected by the storm are Aotearoa's Pacifica communities, many of whom have also been hard hit. Susana Suisuiki reports on how they're coping after the storm. In the midst of all the destruction, Pacifica voices singing songs of praise rang out in church halls across Hawke's Bay. Sanctuaries for Pacific RAC workers in the region, some of whom just days prior were clinging desperately to rooftops surrounded by raging floodwaters. The ex-tropical cyclone Gabrielle has robbed what little possessions they had, but what remains is their faith and belief that they'll regain what they've lost. Hastings Pacifica community leader Tofilau Talalele Taufali says the IRC workers in the region are among those worst affected and is currently on the ground helping the workers who have been left homeless. Tofilau says hundreds of workers have been evacuated. Many of them, of them have been displaced. Uh, many of them have lost their positions and um, many of them have initially had struggled to contact their families to let them know that they are safe. Um, so there are a whole multitude of issues that impacted the, the, the shock that our ROC community um, are going through right now. Tofilau says as far as the emergency response is concerned, he understands there are a lot of worried people with high expectations, but he calls for patience and understanding. We acknowledge that as a community, um, everyone is trying their best, given their limitations. Eh? And so that's where we as a community will say, OK, it is what it is, we're going to help. Although the cleanup is now well underway, it's estimated that it could take months. To further complicate things, telecommunication and connectivity remains limited. The safest bet for connection are phones with data, but even that poses a challenge. Tapuda Trow of SENS Training and Employment says despite Hawke's Bay being one of the most battered, communities across the region stand united. Um, our community has pulled together and they've got such an like overwhelming and overload of donations coming in. So I know that our focus and a lot of the NGOs and the community, um, our main focus is really how can we set them up for after this. Meanwhile, former All Blacks Sir Michael Jones has been helping out at the Auckland's Trust Arena to an evacuation centre for affected families in the city. The Manaki and the Alofa, the Aroha, is just not, not only from the, the, the community that's rallied around to mobilise, 
probably put their own lives at risk in some respects because a lot of them were here late, some slept the night, and so were far away from their own families on probably one of the wildest nights in, in, in Auckland's history. And Secretary and CEO of the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, Jordan Clifford Lidston, says the outpouring of support has been felt outside the hard-hit regions. For us, it's not just about the Hawke's Bay or the Auckland region. There's lots of um, questions coming from around the country, from our concerned communities, making sure, wanting to offer help, wanting to um, provide blankets and and um, towels and all those necessities of life that our families might need. For the latest updates on the recovery effort, please check our website, rnz.co.nz. If you're unsure of where to go to get help, head on over to the Ministry of Social Development website, that's msd.govt.nz. It explains how you can apply for help through the Community Support Fund. And for our Pacifica community members, head over to the Ministry for Pacific Peoples website, who set out an extensive list of severe weather events, information and contact numbers. That's mpp.govt.nz. The Federated States of Micronesia is the last of three North Pacific U.S. countries to sign an MOU with Washington as they negotiate the renewal of economic support through their respective compacts of free association with the United States. Micronesia's President David Panuelo signed the MOU last week, while the leaders of Palau and the Marshals signed theirs last month. Mr. Panuelo, in a speech addressing the country, said FSM stands to gain a significant increase in funding from the United States. During the amended comeback period from 2003 to 2023, the FSM received on an annual basis approximately $80 million per year in sector grants. During our new comeback period from 2024 to 2044, the FSM will receive on an annual basis $140 million per year in sector grants. The money from these sector grants do not just sit at the national government. They go directly to the states and directly to fund our schools, our hospitals and infrastructure. We can expect that in the next comeback period, we will be able to provide much better education, health, and infrastructure services to our citizens, including pay level rises for teachers and doctors, and more and better supplies for our schools and health centers. Over the next 20-year period, the FSM will see $2.8 billion in direct sector grant assistance that will directly benefit our states in tremendous ways. Caleb Fotheringham speaks with RNZ Pacific's Marshall Islands correspondent Giff Johnson about the significance of FSM signing off on the Memorandum of Understanding, which forms the basis for what will become the third edition of its Compact of Free Association with the United States. From the standpoint of the United States, it's quite significant that it has now signed a Memorandum of, of Understanding with the Federated States of Micronesia because it's the last of the three to sign a similar MOU. Both Palau and the Marshall Islands had signed their Compact of Free Association MOUs uh, several weeks ago. 
And the Federated States of Micronesia had some outstanding issues. And then following a visit to Washington by uh, FSM President David Ponwello, uh, like 10 days, two weeks ago or so, uh, they managed to iron it out and they signed this past weekend. So from the U.S. point of view, it now has agreement in principle from all three of the uh, freely associated states in the North Pacific, which is a big plus for the U.S. side. And for the Federated States of Micronesia, if you listen to President Panuelo's speech to the nation, which he put out over the weekend, I mean, he obviously feels that they have gotten an excellent deal. He announced the money figures And it sounds like they've got a pretty good financial response from the U.S. For all three of the freely associated states, there are some really key issues that still are not decided on and must be agreed to before the full compacts of free association for each of the three islands will be signed off on. In terms of the outstanding issues that FSM had, do you have any idea what they were? Well, this is somewhat similar, for at least for the FSM in Palau. The issues are a bit similar, and that is a really key concern is what they call the Fiscal Procedures Agreement, which is the agreement that controls how U.S. funding is spent. And during the current and soon expiring 20-year agreement, Federated States of Micronesia and the Marshall Islands have really disliked the setup because it gives the U.S. a three-to-two majority and the islands don't like it. And then they look to Palau, which didn't sign its compact at the same time 20 years ago. It waited, saw what played out for the FSM and the marshals and use that to get a better setup, the, the financial side of it. So they have a completely different system, which is far superior from the point of view of like island financial decision making. This is a stumbling block that both the uh, Marshall Islands and the FSM uh, have said that, you know, that, that some changes, changes have to be made to that. And whether they still have leverage to get changes based on now having signed agreements in principle about the amounts that'll be provided. I don't know. And that's kind of an open question at this point. But there's still a lot of the details, and, and particularly for the Marshall Islands, a lot of detail is still to be negotiated and put into black and white. So the FSM is unique because it shares diplomatic ties with both China and the U.S. Does this make its compact any different to the others? The FSM's dual China and U.S. uh, diplomatic ties don't make it different totally, but in a way it gives it a bit of leverage since it's the only one of the three freely associated states that do have ties with China, which means it has a a Chinese embassy in its capital, Pompeii. So there's official diplomatic presence in the FSM. And I would say from the U.S. point of view, 
while the Marshall Islands is significant because it has the Kwajalein Missile Range, which is the most important missile testing range that the United States operates, uh, and Palau has its security value in part due to its proximity to Asia, even though it doesn't particularly have active military bases, but the proximity offers various things. And I know that Palau and U.S. officials have been discussing expansion of things there. Meanwhile, the FSM has never had a U.S. military presence, but the diplomatic ties with China in the current geopolitical competition really does give them a bit more leverage. And I think it certainly raises the FSM's visibility in Washington. And I think the uh, U.S. Is, has, been, has shown great willingness to work with President Manuelo and to move this process along. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is the one that's pushed very hard on these deadlines to try to get these uh, preliminary agreements signed, and it's been successful. Uh, the Palau and the Marshalls signed theirs last month, and now the FSM has just signed its. On Monday last week, New Zealand celebrated Waitangi Day, marking 183 years since Māori chiefs signed a covenant with the British Crown. It formed the basis of a nation, but also brings about examination of the government's relationship with its indigenous people and the wrongs committed. This year, celebrations at Waitangi had a Pacific flair, with two Pacifica MPs blessing the National Dawn Ceremony with their prayers. Finau Funua has more. Labour MPs Anaile Avasa and Anahila Konongata'a blessed the commemoration service at Waitangi with prayers in their native tongue. Anaile Avasa, who conducted a prayer in Samoa and described it as a gesture of Polynesian solidarity. Having the Pacific languages spoken in prayer, it's very uh, special for us um, to make sure that we are represented at Waitangi Day. We do have a special relationship with Tangata Whenua. We are indigenous to our own, our own homeland in the Pacific, so we know how important it is that um, that rights of indigenous people are upheld. Declared a public holiday in 1974, Waitangi Day is seen by many as a day of thanksgiving and celebration of New Zealand's founding documents. But to many Māori, it's also seen as a day to hold the crown to account for its many broken promises that followed the treaty. After the document was signed, it didn't take long for Māori to be marginalized on their own land, as the crown soon set about its colonial conquest, which include ambitions for an empire in the Pacific. Auckland University Pacific Studies lecturer Marcia Linen Young says public perception is changing with the increased presence of Maori in power. Dr. Linen Young says Pacifica have in the past mostly abstained from any public participation or debates around Tetiriti. But she says that there is a growing awareness and discussion among young Pacifica about the historical injustices. The interests of Pākehā New Zealand are different from the interests of many Māori. We need those people in those places and it, and it absolutely should be celebrated that we've got now Deputy Prime Minister for the first time as a Pacific woman. But there is still a lot of our society that uh, looks at these developments, at this leadership and believes it doesn't represent them. 
Polynesian Panthers, Malani, Anaises, Maori Pacifica relations are traditionally ingrained since Maori first arrived to Aotearoa from Eastern Polynesia centuries ago. Malani Anai added that Maori had long been in liaison with early anti-colonial movements in Samoa. One of the leaders of the Maori was imprisoned in Mount Eden Prison in 1929. And when he was in prison, he was visited by the... So Maui Pomare, one of New Zealand's prominent Maori uh, politicians. And so they met together as Ariki and Ali uh, in terms of, again, that ancient spiritual cultural connection um, of how we are connected. MP Anailia Vasa says commemorating Waitangi Day is hugely important and helps with efforts to maintain and elevate Maori culture and language. We have to remember the history um, that will benefit Aotearoa um, with all our people here. Uh, I'm so glad that the history of New Zealand is going to be taught in the schools now and that we can acknowledge all that history, the good, the bad, the ugly. The Micronesian bloc of the Pacific Islands Forum say they're ready to attend the special Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting in Fiji next week to put an end to issues impacting regional unity. The president of the Federated States of Micronesia, David Panuelo, says he and the other four leaders of the sub-region, which includes Kiribati, Nauru, Palau and the Marshall Islands, have made big decisions at the Micronesian President's Summit or MPS in Ponape this week. Panuelo told Keldon Anthony they'll be heading to Nandi with four non-negotiables on their agenda to ensure the issues that have eroded regional solidarity are addressed. I had to make sure that there's five of us and there are four major giveaways or you can term it gifts. And I made sure that four guests in my country are taken care of first. So we decided, first of all, to give Kiribati. And of course, we welcome Kiribati coming into the family. We made a decision to give Kiribati to be the host of the sub office and uh, we uh, gave uh, Palau to be the host of the uh, Pacific Ocean Commission office. Uh, we decided to uh, give uh, Nauru uh, their bid to uh, put up the candidate uh, to be the Micronesia's uh, Secretary General, next Secretary General to the Pacific Islands Forum and, and lastly but not the least the uh, Marshall Islands to put up the uh, candidate for the uh, Pacific Ocean Commissioner's uh, position. Uh, so FSM being the host, uh, four items is uh, given to our four MBS uh, uh, countries and uh, you know I, I believe that unity has to be the first thing and I have a, a glad heart that that's uh, taken place and we're ready to come to the uh, special forum leaders meeting in Nanti with uh, those highlights. Would you say that now after this the 21st MPS the Kiribati issue has has it been resolved? Are you on the same page now because uh, as you mentioned you know it's all about unity so all the leaders on the same page now. They had issue with the uh, Pacific Islands Forum like the rest of us in terms of the uh, reform issues that we were, uh, you know, engaging the full membership of BIF uh, about. And so it was achieved, but they came on board uh, last. And so we also, of course, thank the role of uh, the new prime minister and chair of our Pacific Islands Forum for uh, highlighting and making his first international visit or visit to be uh, square 
early on uh, Tarawan to go to uh, uh, Kiribati in order to uh, engage President Mao Mao and uh, emphasize uh, regional unity first. And so we, we want to thank him for that. And I did thank him when he called in and addressed our MBS group uh, 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 or family during the opening of our uh, 21st uh, Marketing President's uh, Summit. And so all of this has uh, uh, come out in a positive light. You know, the Pacific Islands Forum now is uh, fully uh, together as a family and it will never be fractured ever again in the future because we've resolved all of the issues that the Micronesian President Summit has uh, put forward and now we're in the implementation stage. So these decisions have been uh, awaited by the full fifth uh, membership and as chair of the forum, I'm sure that you will be awaiting our, our uh, participating the special forum leaders meeting uh, to discuss these and uh, other matters of uh, importance. So just to confirm the, the you know the big decisions that you made as MPS, these are the broader endorsement that's going to be given uh, by the forum leaders. Uh, yes, because uh, the chair did say that the decisions has to be an MPS decision, and uh, he's right about it. We came together, we had our uh, you know caucus and meetings, and uh, that's what we uh, arrived at. And those meetings are very important. So can I say that these these are the non-negotiables from the MPS? Uh, yes, those are the issues that are kind contained in the SUVA agreement, which is uh, already signed by all the members except Kiribati, but Kiribati coming on board as a, uh, returning to the BIF family will, of course, be signed by Kiribati, I'm sure, as a full uh, a member of the forum. And so it is a, a legally a binding agreement signed by all, which would be implemented. As you say, you know, all the members of MPS will be present at the at the meeting. Will will these things be on the agenda? Is this, is, is this the reason for this special leaders meeting? I, I believe so. The special forum leaders meeting is squarely to be held so that we can implement the uh, uh, the SUVA agreement. And so uh, the uh, the meeting is uh, awaiting the decisions of the MPS uh, family. That's been made now. And then so, uh, yes, I'm sure, uh, as I understand my colleagues, everybody are uh, planning to uh, be in Nanti for that special forum leaders uh, meeting. All of the Micronesian uh, uh, members are already uh, working on their schedule to be in Nandi for that special meeting. For many Pacific Islanders, rugby is more than just a sport. It's like a religion to some, to others a pathway to a better life, bringing joy, money and a sense of identity. But as we approach the start of the Super Rugby Pacific 2023 season, a new podcast, Fair Game, is looking at what Pacific countries are up against when it comes to the powerful forces that run the game. For instance, the Rugby World Cup in 2019 saw 11 of the 20 teams fielding players of Pacific heritage. That's more than 20% of those taking part in the competition, and yet as Fair Game host and comedian James Nokise tells me, those nations had less than 4% representation when it came to making the big decisions affecting their teams. Well, it's the, the, the concept is um, that the Pacific nations are not necessarily deliberately um, but are disadvantaged by the current system that is in place within world rugby. So we wanted to look at the realities that Samoa, Donga, Fiji are all facing, present those to our audiences, uh, and also look at um, how they have got into that position. 
as well. And and whether it is structural racism um, that is in place and which is um, holding Pacific nations back from you know achieving their potential on the world stage. Star-studded lineup with guests um, from rugby from the past through to now. Tell us a bit about the episodes that are already already out and who, who you've spoken to. Well, uh, episode one, so that we get the heavy hitters, we've got Sir Brian Williams, uh, you know, talking to us as um, both the you know the patron of Moana Pacifica and and also the, just a legend in in his own right. He's he's really lived the experience. He's he's kicked down a lot of the doors. Um, but then we also go we go all the way up the chain. We talk to uh, Sir Bill Beaumont. Um, freshly, well, we talked to him before he's been made a Samoan chief. You know, a Samoans, man, we'll, we'll chief anyone. And, uh, <laughs> and so we uh, attacked him, and um, it was very insightful because he didn't shy away from the questions that we had. And I, I think he comes from, uh, even though he's got a knighthood, he comes from a, a traditionally a working class background in the UK, um, you know, and, and people over there and, and that kind of situation aren't so far from people over here in that situation and so it's one thing to sit in your lounge sit in your garage and go you know what i reckon this is because of this and it's because of this it's another thing to be sitting there talking to the chairman of world rugby and say is it because of this is it because of that and them to go yeah it is a little bit and this is what we've seen and this is what we're trying to do and then be able to push back and go well what about what's happening here you know I think the key thing we tried to show was the the levers of power and where that power resides. Um, you've got um, um, a wonderful uh, former colleague, Tali Anderson, on, on a women's episode as well. Uh, how important is that conversation? Oh, Tali is a, a brilliant journalist. Uh, we're really lucky to work with her and uh, very important to have her voice leading that because the last thing you want when you're talking about women's rugby is is men talking about it. Um, but also, I, I think in this, in 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 its own way, with the in, in the, not just a Pacific thing, but in a lot of cultures, having her lead the interviews as well, you know, and, and there's a joy um, in in a lot of the talks, there's an openness uh, and a vulnerability from the people that she was able to talk to, and, and very important people in the women's game who are not household names, um, but should be, and, and the way that they were opening up to her. I think there's a lot of, there's actually quite a bit of crying in that episode. And all I would say to that is that I think the men would also cry. There's a bit more swearing in the men's episode. But I think the men would cry if it was built into our culture, Pacifica culture, for men to cry publicly. Then I think they would cry at the frustration of the situations too. You mentioned joy as well as all the struggle these these are gods among men within our communities. Talk, talk us through a bit of the, the celebrations of those doors you mentioned them kicking down. Well, I, I think one of the things that comes through uh, from talking to people about their experiences, and this, this might seem a strange thing for a Pacifica audience to hear, but it is the love from non-Pacific audiences. So, you know, players who've played in the UK, the UK players love them. You know, the UK fans love them, but they don't know where they're coming from, you know. And when they get to put on their jersey and play for their country, there's no money there. You know, you, you don't you don't make the kind of money you'd make. So they don't do it for that. They do it for their family to see them wearing that jersey. They do it to hear the national anthem, to, to sing those words, you know, and, and to compete for the pride of their nation. And other teams do that as well. 
but they have the financial backing, the infrastructure, the technology to put them at a level that Pacific nations just aren't able sometimes for their own economy. You know, Tonga gets devastated by a volcano. How is their economy meant to help their rugby team when they are facing that kind of issue? So what if we want to see Tongan rugby in the world, and it's brilliant rugby and it's brilliant players, what needs to be done to help them when they're in such a dire situation? And even what these players have to go through to even be allowed to play for their countries. Talk, talk us through, through some of those stories as well. Well, like I said, there's no, there's not much money. I don't want to pretend there's no money, you know, but there's not. Some of these players, they have to pay for their own fares. They got to, some of these players have to pay their own way to be able to, to get over here, you know, and they've got to take a massive pay cut. Some of them, uh, they're, you know, depending on what time of the season it is in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, they can risk losing their contract. And, they're doing that to come over to this part of the world and, and play uh, for their team with, with quite a large chance that they'll lose. You know? Maybe not by 100 points. The, the, the Dongin captain flew in from, um, from Europe to lead that team, you know, knowing that it was going to be bad, probably not that bad. And that's, that's what the players are facing is there's a lack of time to come together. Samoa goes to uh, Europe for the Northern Test. Fiji goes up to Europe for the Northern Test. They can't bring their 100% strength team because the finances aren't there to take one. So they got to pull in players who are good but not their top team from around Europe. And it's that kind of discrepancy. If, if New Zealand or Australia were having those kind of troubles, it would be, you know, six o'clock, story number one. You know, something has to be done. We have to fix this. But for all of that, then you look at players who are first generation, second generation, and they end up playing for those teams. So now you've got Pacific Islanders. Eight out of the top 10 teams in the world uh, have Pacific Islanders playing in their squads, have players in their squads who could play for the Pacific Islanders. But Samoa's ranked 11th, uh, Fiji is ranked 14th, and Donga is ranked 15th. So the three big Pacific nations aren't even in the top 10, but the top 10, eight of their teams have players who could play. So that's, that's the kind of mental issues uh, also there. That's Tangata Ote Moana for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me follow next week more.